Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. Welcome to another episode of Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and founder of This Is HCD and CEO of ThisIsDoing.com, where we provide live online design and innovation classes, providing training for service designers, design researchers, product managers, user experience designers, content designers, and much, much more. Today in the show, we have the wonderful Aral Balkan, a cyber rights activist who's on a mission to spread the word about surveillance capitalism, a system that he says that the tech giants of Silicon Valley are using and abusing for their gain. We chat about lots of things as what we can do about this and should we be worried and what does the future look like as a result of these organisations gaining much, much more control of not only the markets, society, but also us as people. I really enjoyed speaking to Aral and love the parts where he speaks about design being treated like decoration, something that's going to resonate with many of our listeners. Design is decoration in organizations who have abuse at the center of their business models. Now, Aral has some really strong points of view around this and what to do if you're working in an organization like this to help kind of move that dial forward. So sit back, grab a coffee, and actually go and grab a pot of coffee and sit back because we've got some fun in this episode too. So let's jump straight into this episode. Aral Balkan, a very warm welcome to Bring in Design Closer. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you here. We've been communicating for coming up to nearly a year, trying to align our calendars to, to make this happen. <laughs> we so have. It, it's exciting for me to, to finally get to speak to you. Oh, um, likewise. Aral, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do, because you've got such an, an amazing background. Let's start off. You're a cyborg rights activist. (laughs) I don't know about amazing, but I've basically just been making things with technology since I was seven years old. And I was very lucky. I was very privileged. I was seven. My dad brought home a computer, an IBM XT clone. These are very old days we're talking about. Mm. In the uh, 80s. (laughs) In the 80s. And he just put it in front of me and he said, go ahead, use it. You can't break it. And I did. I started to learn how to program. I broke it eventually with fire and smoke. Uh, <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah, yeah. Just when, when your dad says, don't put in that math coprocessor because we bought the wrong one and it's not compatible. Don't think, oh, no, the pins fit. He must not know <laughs> what he's talking about. This industrial engineer and computer scientist doesn't know what he's talking about. But seven, eight year old Oral does. So uh, and then you switch it on and it's fireworks. <laughs> And the worst part of that story is I was so scared, so scared after I did that, that when my dad came home the week before we'd been working on the computer yeah. and he dropped a paperclip into the computer and I was so scared of getting blamed for it that I said, dad, you'd never believe what happened. You know, that paperclip you dropped into the computer. Oh, 
I know it's horrible. Does he know the truth? <laughs> he does. does he, he, does many, he, many, <laughs> he does know. He does know. It took. He does now. It took many, many years before I <laughs> built up the courage to tell him, yeah. but I did, and he t- and he took it with a laugh, and that's part of what was so cool. You know that whole thing he said about putting that computer in front of me and saying just experiment, play with it. Yeah, that's kind of always stayed with me. And the whole cyborg rights activist thing that people are very interested in. What does that mean? It just basically means human rights activist in the digital and networked age. Yeah. As I see it, anyone that uses modern technology today is a cyborg. Modern digital and network technology. In fact, even before that, do mm. you wear contact lenses? Well, great, you're a cyborg. What's yeah. different with our so-called smart technologies today is your smart contact lenses, if we get them one day, mm. might mean that some corporation somewhere is seeing what you're seeing. And if that happens, then things take a very dystopian turn, and they already have. So how do we protect human rights in the digital and networked age? That's all I mean by a cyborg. Yeah. And, and, and also, very importantly, we need to protect people's rights to not use modern technology as well. Yeah. That's very important as well yeah. in terms of human rights. Errol, how did you get into this, though? Because I know on your website, you do design and you do development and you have done development. I know from that seven year old Aral who, <laughs> who got us got the computer, you know, that led into experimentation and being a professional, creating software and apps and stuff like that. Yeah. How, how did that world lead into this? I'm really keen to, to talk a little bit more around that. Well, it's, it's been a very natural progression, really, I think both personally and in terms of what I do, which I can't really separate those two things since I have always been making things with computers as far as I can remember. But at the very beginning, it was just for my own amusement. You know, like I said, I was a very privileged little kid. My parents were never rich, but we were well off in terms of we were middle class. I grew up in Malaysia, being Mm -hmm. part of the kind of expat community there. My parents were having tea with the royal family, etc. So we were well off, like we were not financially necessarily, but I had all the privileges. And I was a spoiled little eight-year-old, seven-year-old brat growing up in Malaysia. I was Dennis the Menace. I was horrible. I didn't hurt people like physically or anything, but I was like a really privileged brat. And it's been that same sort of process of becoming more and more aware of my own privilege, both in, you know, how, who I am, what I do, but also what I'm building and going from a state of, okay, I'm just building these hedonistically for my own amusement initially, making games, et cetera, or for people to say, oh, you're so clever. Look at how clever you are and look at what he's built. Oh, isn't he amazing? From that sort of vanity and kind of hedonism, to realizing later on that, oh my gosh, well, the stuff that I build can have a profound impact on other people's lives. It can actually make other people's lives easier. It can actually enable them to do things that they couldn't possibly do before. And I have a huge responsibility. But still, again, kind of in a very colonial way, as in like, I am the expert, I know what's best, right? That we we fall into this so easily in what we do. Right. We're so clever. Oh, gosh, we have all this technical knowledge. Everyone should live as we think they should live and use our tools that we built, thinking that's the only way to do things to becoming again more aware. And this is where this is what brought me to the importance of design, because mm. I was like, if what we built, for example, takes people a minute longer than it should for them to do something, that seems like nothing. 
But if a million people are using it, if a billion yeah. people are using it, we're talking about a million minutes. We're talking about billion minutes. We're talking about lifetimes lost. So mm. it's very important that, that we, we really respect people's experience because people have a limited amount of time on earth. You know, if you think of an hourglass of sand, that is your life. When, that, when the last sand goes, that's it. So how do we make sure we respect every grain of sand inside your hourglass? So that's, that's what brought me to the importance of design and really understanding that responsibility. But what brought me to where I am today is moving mm. beyond that and understanding that design isn't just about, we like to say in the design world, like it's not about the form, it's about the function. It's about actually much more than that. It's about the socioeconomic system uh, within which the things that we built are built. It's about our goals for success. It's about our approach. Are we being colonial in how we're designing things? Mm. It's about our business models and our funding models. So all of these things are part of design and should be considered part of design if we start to care about concepts such as human rights, democracy. How are the things that we're building impacting society? How are the things that we're building impacting people, people's lives, not just in the moment in terms of enabling them to do something, but while doing that, are we also eroding their rights? Yeah. In doing that, are we also threatening democracy? Are we also creating things that are not a force for good in the world? So it's been a very long process, becoming aware of my own privilege. Privacy is obviously a, a big thing, and it's been a, it's something that I've questioned a lot over the years, but probably not as much as you. You've really taken this, and it is your core offering. You, you speak about this all the time and how we're being abused against, our privacy is being abused. But what I'm seeing is, and this is something like I'm reflecting on my own personal life, like I have a personal gripe against some of the big tech companies, Facebook mm. in particular, mm. and I've spoken about it at length in the podcast, but um, at a barbecue, say, in, within my family about a year ago, one of my family members asked me why, and I explained to them, said, listen, look, well, I just don't trust them, and you know, this is what they're doing with it, and you know, it could potentially be used to discriminate, you know, minority groups are being discriminated against, and all that, and they said, it doesn't affect me. And it, it's not something like well, nothing has happened so far to me. And I'm like, right. yeah, but it's not about you. It's about society. It's about a bigger, it's about a bigger motive. What do you say to people uh, in that scenario about why they should care about privacy and why don't more people care about their privacy? Well, I, I think there are two points to be made there. One is the assumption that people don't care about their privacy. And that is just not true. If you look at especially young people when, when uh, they're surveyed, they do care about their privacy. The problem mm -hmm. is we've invested 99.9% .9 of all money that goes into tech, into surveillance capitalism, into surveillance-based products, into startups, uh, into exponential growth and the Silicon Valley model. So that's a problem, right? We can't just do that and then build all of this surveillance-based infrastructure and then tell people, oh, well, you must not care about your privacy if you're using all this. No, why is this the only type of technology that you're building and investing in, right? Because then it becomes victim blaming. The mm. people who are forced to use Facebook because their children's school is on Facebook are the yeah. victims here, right? And even if they care about their privacy, so let's say that these people really care about their privacy, and they do, because uh, mm. every time they're asked, yeah. every time there are surveys, you see that they do. They really care but they don't have any alternatives, let's say. There are alternatives yeah. that are being made today. They don't have any alternatives. Then what does this turn into? It turns into learned helplessness, right? And transparency doesn't help. 
Facebook being, I mean, transparency is a good first step, but Facebook being more transparent about how it abuses you and Google being more transparent about how it abuses you doesn't help unless we take action on that. And, and we can't. Mm. We've, we've seen that even in Europe with GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, we have no enforcement. And part mm. of this is because these companies today are so big, are so powerful that they are too big to regulate. That, mm. that, and, 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 and of course, our system is also corrupt. We have institutional corruption. So we have something like GDPR, a piece of regulation in the EU, but who is supposed to be enforcing it? Basically, mm. the equivalent of a mom and pop store in Ireland, right? Mm. A corner, yeah. They were literally in a corner store unit until very recently. And if you look at Ireland, for example, and you look at the investments that companies like Facebook and Google have made in Ireland and big tech has made in Ireland, who is the stronger party here? Is it yeah. Ireland or is it Silicon Valley? It's Silicon Valley, right? That's why they're yeah. headquartered here. That's why, and, and if the people who are supposed to be regulating them are the same ones that are dependent on them for jobs in their economy, then we have a problem here. We can't regulate them because we're dependent on them. Yeah, no, right? absolutely. So that's a really big problem as well here. So I remember in a, in a talk that you gave, you mentioned about the city of Amsterdam and mm. the city of Amsterdam partnering with, I think it might have been Google. Or yeah, it was Google and right, exchanging license the, the license plates in return for the app, the city of yeah. Amsterdam's app yeah. being able to determine whenever there was, I think it was a, oh, a parking space or traffic. Yeah. That seems like, you know, if you're in, in a government organization and you know yeah. how slow things work in a government yeah. organization yeah. and they look over the pond and they see the money and they see the pool tables and the slushies <laughs> and, you know, yeah. the, the, the hoodies. And they're like, oh, you know, that's so cool. You know, they're mm. going to give us this kind of functionality and it's going to make everyone in Amsterdam really happy and they're going to yeah. get value and be able to find the yeah. parking space. Going back to your point about the hourglass and the, and the sand, yeah. like being a grain of sand, finding a parking spot in Amsterdam is tough. What's wrong in that scenario? Everything's, everything's wrong. Let's in that talk scenario. about it. So let's start with the people who are in charge of public policy or civic services and government, local governments, et cetera. We have a huge problem because they are, for the most part, and there might be a couple of outliers, they are completely ignorant about technology, right? And most of the mm. time, they have bought into, like you said, this kind of Disneyland version of Silicon Valley. I mean, I've seen this so often in various European institutions, etc., even organizations whose job it is to protect people like children, internet safety, etc. And I've seen like the heads of these organizations taken on tours. I watched one of the head of a, a child safety initiative in the EU taken on this tour because they showed it at their event. And she's being taken around Facebook's campuses. And she's like one of those little children in Willy Wonka's <laughs> factory, you know, and it's just like, it's all so amazing. And, you know, who knows? Maybe if I'm nice in three or five years time, they'll let me work here. And that's the problem. That's part of the institutional mm. corruption I was talking about. We have yeah. policymakers who are supposed to be protecting our rights, who in three or five years want to work there, right? Yeah. I mean, this is not just theoretical. There was a talk at one of the conferences I went to. The conference was organized by data protection officers, right, in Europe. Mm -hmm. And who was giving a keynote? I was giving a keynote. Who else was giving a keynote? Facebook. Oh, like, yeah. you're kidding me, right? You are kidding me. Can I swear on this podcast? Yes. Because you are, you are fucking kidding me. Facebook has a keynote? Okay. And who's doing the Facebook keynote? Who's giving the Facebook keynote? Oh, this guy who's a lawyer who used to work for the French Data Protection Office. His last job was that, and now he's working at Facebook. 
So as long as we're corrupt in this way, these are called revolving doors. As long as the Silicon Valley companies can lobby our politicians and our policymakers with millions every year, then we're not going to be able to regulate them. And we're seeing that. There's no enforcement of, of yeah. regulation whatsoever. In, in, a, in a previous conversation I had recently on the podcast, we spoke about organizations needing certain skill sets and sometimes choosing uh, a project that's ethically sound is, is quite difficult. And sometimes it involves going into the belly of the beast. So mm. what do you say to that argument in, as regards Facebook? I can't imagine it being pure. I'm sorry. I'm trying to be a devil's advocate here, but I say <laughs> Facebook, we're, we're trying to do the right thing. And they were like, actually, the best man for the job, or the best person for the job even, is that person over there. And they worked in government. Is that a likely scenario, do you see? No. <laughs> I mean, okay. come on. Next we're question. Talking tri- <laughs> we're talking about trillion dollars, co- trillion dollar companies, right? We're talking about the ruthless people at the helm of these companies that can build trillion dollar companies, right? You, you mm-hmm. don't build a trillion dollar company if you're a nice person, right? You just can't yeah. do it. It doesn't happen. You have to be ruthless. And we know what their business models are. And that's the most important thing. You don't need conspiracy theories. You don't need to know if Mark's a nice guy or not, right? You know mm. his business model. And his business model is to track everything that you do, to follow you around the web, to follow you around everywhere they can outside of uh, even intangible space, to compile all of this information about you into a living dossier that is your profile, and then Mm -hmm. to continuously mine that to understand who you are. They want to know you better than you know yourself. That's the business model. Why? Because if I know you better than you know yourself, and especially if you know nothing about me, that creates a huge power differential. And it means that I can exploit and I can manipulate your behavior. And I do that either to make a profit or to make a profit and, and other things. When you're talking about a trillion dollar company, they, they have political needs as well. Yeah. So going back to the, the, the scenario of the barbecue that I mentioned earlier mm. and a family member saying to me, well, nothing's happened to me. They can take my data. Well, what am I going to do with it? What do you say to that person? Right. I mean, I, I'd say you really need to check your privilege. This is a very privileged position to be in. Yes. Yeah. You're, I mean, for one thing, you're also quite selfish, right? Because especially mm-hmm. if you're saying, hey, I know that minorities are being affected negatively by this. I know mm-hmm. that vulnerable people are being affected by this, but I'm not, and that's okay. Then you're not a very nice person. Let's get that mm-hmm. straight, right? To begin with, because you're just saying, hey, fuck you, I got mine. It's okay. But yeah. you're also very short-sighted and you're also being very naive. Because yeah. yes, it always starts with the most vulnerable. It always starts with the least privileged, but it will catch up with you eventually. So you may not feel it today, but the next time you go to renew your health insurance, your premiums will have doubled. Oh my yeah. goodness, why did my premiums double? Oh, well, your smart fridge tells, tells us how you're eating and you're really quite a slob. Yeah. Oh, great, yeah, that's it. <laughs> have you, you been know? speaking to my wife? <laughs> this is not about you. <laughs> I, I know this pandemic hasn't been kind to my waistline, but how dare you? <laughs> to, to, to none of our waistlines, I am sure of that. <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned there about the data not being kind in the future, okay? And the scenario that I'm kind of interested in at the moment, having two, two children under three and a half and hyper-conscious of sharing information related to them, they're too young to make those decisions themselves. Mm-hmm. What does the future look like if we don't address this now as regards our privacy? What does it look like for our children? Ask yourself. I mean, I just told you about how I kind of see my life up to this point and hopefully beyond as a journey. And that Mm. I can't recognize the seven-year-old who got his first computer, right? When I look Mm. at that person, 
I don't necessarily see the person I want to be at all. You know, I see a very different person, and I'm glad that I was able to go on that journey and, and, and change. And I think that is part of life, right? We grow, we change, and to a point where we might become completely different people at different points in our lives. And we need to have the chance to do that. Now, imagine if seven-year-old me had been on Twitter. And growing up, like I said, I was very privileged. I mm. probably would have been a conservative. I probably, uh, and not even probably, I, 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 was, I, I was brought up in the 80s. I was brought up by racism and sexism and, and all of these things. And I wasn't even aware that they were things. What it means to, be, to grow up in a certain type of society that is racist, that is classist, that is sexist. Imagine if I'd been tweeting, tweeting back then. Goodness knows what I would have been saying, right? Yeah. I, I would have been one of those people that I blocked right now, just like, oh my, what is wrong with this person? But I wasn't. And there wasn't a record of that until now. Yeah. Imagine if I'd been judged today by my seven-year-old tweets that when I was seven from like 30 years ago, 30 yeah. odd years ago. We need to give people the room to grow and to change and to become better. And yeah. if everything, and then part of that is having things be ephemeral to some degree. This is not about not holding people who've done bad things to account. Yes, we need to do that, of course. This is about allowing people the natural freedom that we have as human beings to learn and to grow and to expand and to become better people. If we take that away, if your life becomes an immutable string of data that we can always go back on, now what can happen from that? People could, of course, judge you for what you said when you were seven years old. That's one thing that maybe mm -hmm. you didn't even know that was going to be kept for 30 years. That's one thing. But governments can go back in time, right? Today, you have a liberal government, let's say. You have a government that's, that's cool with gay rights, that's cool with a multicultural society. Three governments from now, you have neo-Nazis in power. Mm. But they have a whole record. They know they can go back and they can find people and they can retroactively blame people for things and they can retroactively bring people to their notion of justice if we have these immutable records. So it's very important, not the right to be forgotten, because again, the right to be forgotten is, is, is framed within our current system. Mm. The right not to be remembered to begin with. The right to decide what is remembered, right? The right to, and this goes back to the very fundamental notion of what privacy is. Privacy is having the right to decide what you keep to yourself and what you share with others. It's not the same as secrecy. It's not because you have anything to hide. It's not because you're doing anything wrong. The reason I don't want to tell you or... Google or IBM or Facebook or Palantir, everything about me is because it's none of your business. It's because it's my human right to decide what I share and what I keep to myself. It's a very simple concept, privacy. If you ever hear people saying, oh, it's so complex, it's, so, it's not. The people who are telling you that want you to think that it's a very complex, hard problem because probably they are engaged in the business of violating your privacy and violating your human rights and profiting off of it. No, it's yeah. very simple. And this is how we also. This is the, also the clue for how we design products and services and organizations differently so that we can, have, uh, so that we can respect human rights and we can, we can be a positive force for democracy yeah. instead of threatening it. it. It's really about control and the choice and the power to yes. have that. ownership and control. And I don't mean ownership in, in a capitalist sense. Mm. Ownership in the sense that if I have ownership and control over my own data, over my own technology... I mean that in the sense that nobody else has ownership and control of it, right? As in yeah. a company doesn't. 
It's not because I want to, for example, some people say, oh, well, and you hinted to it, like if these companies use my data and I don't, because some people say, turn around and they say, oh, cool. So let's build a world where you own your data in a capitalist sense so that you can sell it and so that you can rent it so that you get a bit of the pie as well. And that mm. is, again, so short sighted, right? Yeah. It's again, we need to just start thinking about things outside of the very limited space of markets, right? Not everything is a fucking corner store. Not everything is a market, right? There are things that are greater than that. Human dignity, human rights, human welfare. How should we live? That's the core kind of question of philosophy, right? What is good? How should we live? These are questions that transcend a, a, a sales transaction. Yeah. Why are we so myopic that we've, we've started to think of the world in only the bounds of sales transactions and somebody making money and something. This is so short-sighted, right? So we need to you, think beyond that. We, are, we have to think beyond that. And it's a good segue into the next couple of questions because you create software, you create apps, you've created apps in the past. So yeah. what differs between how you create software versus, say, I'm using air quotes here, everyone, traditional software development? Okay. So I think this all goes back to design as well to, to start with. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to the design of the organization. So me talking about how we build products or what our products are like or what our tools are like, I don't even call them products, they're tools, right? So what our tools are like is meaningless without understanding our ideological approach to it and the organization and the structure that we have. Mm. So we're a not-for-profit. So straight off the bat, our goal is not how do we get more money and get a yacht and, and absolutely organizations ship themselves right so we're a not-for-profit we don't have equity investment even as a not-for-profit we don't have venture capital etc whatever our and and we've actually chosen an organizational structure where we can't sell because that's not our goal our goal is to create a sustainable organization doing the things we want to do and for what reason yeah right? why am i doing what i'm doing for one very specific reason to try and create the kind of world that I want to live in. Mm -hmm. And this is important. You know, why yeah. are you doing what you're doing? Is it to make a billion dollars? Okay, fine. I have nothing to say to you. There's nothing I can say to you, right? That's your goal. We know how that game plays out. Good luck. Great. But I think if you ask people truly what they want, they probably want the very basic things in, from the world, right? The very basic things that we can all have that we don't today because we have uh, this huge disparity in wealth, huge disparity in power yeah. in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And we're seeing the effects of that. We're seeing the effects of that with climate change. We're seeing the effects of that with social unrest all around the world right now, with the rise of authoritarian governments and regimes all around the world right now. This is what happens when you have a world where a handful, a relative handful, what, 20, 25, 27 people have most of the world's wealth, right? Yeah. A world of billionaires is not a sustainable world. So I want to live in a sustainable world where people are treated well, where Today, I think the sign of a modern society should be, or the test of a modern society should be, do you have any homeless people on the streets? Do you have people going hungry? Do you have people dying of preventable diseases? If you do, you cannot call yourself a modern country today because we have the technological means to eradicate all of that, right? Mm. Jeff Bezos, with a fraction of his wealth, could eradicate hunger based on the UN statistics for about the next 10 years if he just gave that amount that proportion of his wealth, right? He yeah. chooses not to every day. He chooses yeah. not to, but it shouldn't even be his choice, right? We have this huge disparity in wealth and power in the world today. So we try to build tools 
to try and bring about the kind of world that we want to live in. And it's important to understand that the Small Technology Foundation, who we are, statistically, we don't exist, right? Mm. We're just, it's, it's Laura and me, we're working on tools. We, we probably have a much louder voice than our stature, you know, yeah. in terms of our size, but we don't really exist statistically. If you put everyone in the world who's working, truly working, not as public relations, not as some sort of ethics washing or, or privacy mm. washing, if you put everyone who's truly working on this problem together, you could probably fit them in a very large room today. And that's part of the problem. And again, it's, it's a systemic issue. We're trying. I, yeah. I think part of it is, part of what I believe is that some of the stuff that we're working on, if it's out of the bag, it's out of the bag. And it becomes bigger than you. It, it, it's the sort of thing that doesn't scale vertically like Silicon Valley startups, but it scales yeah. horizontally. Yeah. But so all of this changes how we approach how we build, right? We try to approach it from a non-colonial perspective. In design, what we normally do is we have, uh, we're the designers, we're the developers, we're the mm -hmm. experts, and then there is the other, right? The other, and, and we call them users, right? We are one of, two industries in the world that we're not allowed to use users in this users, podcast right you're not good good that's very good because it's us and drug dealers that use the term yeah. users and that's not a coincidence we both use it to describe mm. the people that we addict to our products and then exploit and manipulate if we are silicon valley right mm. does all technology have to be built in this way no of course not completely no. the opposite right um, we can build technology so that it's not owned and controlled by us, the people who are building it. We can build technology so it's owned and controlled by the people. Let's call them people because they're human beings. Let's not yes. forget that. It's much harder to, to do bad things to people when you think of them as people. And it's a very small step from user to dumb user, right? Yeah. Because that is colonial. That's what I mean by colonial design. We have the experts, usually white male, like, hello, hi, designing for the other. And you see this now being, you know, so explicitly brandied mm. about in Silicon Valley, where they're talking about the next five billion. Oh, what are we going to build for Africa? What are we going to build for India? Google's investing in India, 10 billion. This is just colonialism. This is just digital yeah. colonialism, digital imperialism. It's replicating right? itself. Exactly. How do we build technology differently? Why yeah. don't we build technology where, yes, we're maybe building some infrastructure, but it's free and open. Anyone mm. can take it and adapt it. So you're not saying, I know best what this person in Africa needs. I do not. I have no clue. I haven't lived there, right? Yeah. It would be the greatest of assumptions and, and a hugely anthropological colonial approach for me to say, I know what's best for you, person in a land I've never visited, right? That's just plain old colonialism. But what if I said, hey, here are some basic tools. They're freely available. Take the bits that work for you, combine them in ways that work for you, add on top of it, share back. And if we build technology this way, then that's a non-colonial approach. It's also recognizing that I can only build tech for myself and for people like me and, and for the people I understand and I know, right? Mm -hmm. I'm saying, I, I, and we can only best design for ourselves. The yeah. whole thing in design about design research, I have such an issue with because that's just anthropology right? That is just a few steps removed from when we were hiding in bushes, bushes, watching the natives with our binoculars, right? And now we say, oh, well, we don't do that anymore because we have co-design. We're inviting the natives for tea. We're better. No, sorry, you're still calling them natives and, and, and you're still being colonial in your approach. So that's very different to saying, 
hey, here's this group of people. We are not part of their culture, etc. Do they need anything to be able to build stuff like infrastructural stuff? Can we help with that? But asking them, what can we do? And having them own it. Because if you're building yeah. something and then you're making billions off of it, that's again colonial, right? But if you're enabling other people to build for themselves and to have a sustainable uh, future for themselves where you're not at the center. Yeah. And this is very interesting. We talk about human-centered design, right? Mm -hmm. I think we also have to start talking about how do we decenter ourselves in design? How Absolutely. do we design where we're not at the center of it, yeah. right? And that's, that's our approach. That's what we're trying to do. That's why we're building infrastructural tools right now to enable developers to build everyday things uh, for yeah. people. That's the stage we're at right now. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the listenership on, on this particular podcast will more than likely will be nodding along. Like there's, there's a lot of agreement <clears throat> in the future being, being different. So many of the listeners are product managers, user experience designers, service designers, people who are in the world of innovation. Right. And they're within these organizations and they realize that things need to change. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you say to those practitioners who are in those teams that want to help move the dial in the right direction? Awesome. What can they do? First and foremost, ask some hard questions about where you're working, right? Ask some hard questions about your company. You may have the best of intentions, but if you're working at Facebook, I'm sorry, you're not going to change a single thing, right? The only way you can affect positive change if you're working at Facebook is if you sabotage it, and then you will get fired eventually when it gets found out, right? There is no such thing as change from within when the within is a hugely successful trillion-dollar publicly traded company right? Mm. As far as Facebook is concerned, there is nothing wrong whatsoever with their business practice. As far as Facebook's shareholders are concerned, there is nothing wrong. They are making their profits. They are hugely wealthy. They are the Silicon Valley capitalist success story, right, of our mm. times. So you're not going to affect change inside. You could by sabotaging it. You know, I'm not saying do that. This is not my advice to you. But if you're here to. first, folks. But the other thing you can do is you can leave. Now, some people will say, well, I can't. I have rent to pay and I have and you know, children, children to, feed. to feed. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm not talking about you if you're working at Facebook's cafeteria or if you're, if you're I'm talking about you as in you are earning six figures and stock uh, options um, as an engineer at Facebook. Your only option is not that and starvation, right? There are a huge number of ethical organizations, even in today's world, even under capitalism, where they just make a product, they just make a tool, and they ask people to pay them for it, and it's a very tra straightforward transaction. They're not doing anything evil. They're not tracking mm. them. They're not profiling them. They're not trying to manipulate their behavior. They're not trying to addict them. And a lot of times, we see these as less sexy. We were like, oh, yeah, but that's just a sustainable kind of small, medium company that creates a useful tool. Yeah, exactly. Why isn't this our success criteria, right? Why aren't we celebrating these sort of organizations and companies, especially in Europe? In Europe yeah. still, despite all of Silicon Valley's efforts, right? The Silicon Valley model is not the de facto model for technology companies. And they're trying, they're spending so much money. Even the European Commission is funding startups. And a startup is not just any new company. It's a company that takes venture capital, that has to have mm -hmm. an exit. You need to sell the company for those people who gave you $5 million to get their money back. And the money yeah. back they want is a billion. So yeah. you need to become a unicorn, right? You need to become a billion-dollar unicorn. 
And there's only one way you do that by exploiting people, by yeah. creating companies that track and exploit people. It's the only way you scale. You can't scale to that sort of height by having a sustainable business. In fact, if you're cash flow positive, and you go to a Silicon Valley venture capitalist and you say, hey, I'd like you to invest in my firm. Look, we're sustainable. We're making good money, et cetera. They'll be like, they'll laugh you out of the room. That's not what they want. They want you to attract and addict as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, and to have all of their data and then mm. for you to get sold to Facebook or Google or for you to IPO, right? And become a publicly traded company yourself. That's the game. We know how yeah. that game works, right? So we need, we need alternate funding models as well if we're going to have places where the people who care about this can work, well, maybe we should start thinking about how can we support such technology for the common good from mm. the commons, from our yeah. taxes even. We're not having these conversations. But no. just to get back to what you were saying originally, what do I say to these people who are working at Facebook and Google today, who are aware of, of these issues, who care about these issues? Mm. If you can, and, and, and again, if you have six figures and, and stock options, you can, trust me, quit right? Take mm. your labor away. That's the biggest thing you can do. Yeah. And second step, create alternatives or even yeah. work for more neutral organizations where you're just building technology that's a tool. Yeah. Have you any examples of organizations that you've seen move the dial away from surveillance capitalism in the positive direction? No. No. I, you mean, do you mean internally? Like, do you mean like they've changed yeah. their business? Yeah. No, because they can't. I mean, again, especially if you're a publicly traded company, right? And you are successful. You have a fiscal responsibility, a fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders to provide quarter-on-quarter mm -hmm. -quarter growth. This is part of the huge problem with Silicon Valley. Yeah. It isn't even enough that you are a trillion-dollar company. If next quarter you're not a trillion-and-one-dollar company, you're a failure. Mm -hmm. Because our <clears throat> notion of success in Silicon Valley is exponential growth. And exponential growth with finite resources is just a synonym for extinction. It is the same success model, the same success criteria as the cancer cell, mm. right? I mean, that's what cancer is, right? When, when otherwise functioning cells forget their main function and their only goal from there on is to grow and grow. And this is how we get the tumors. The tumors today are Facebook and Google and Snapchat and, and, and all of these Silicon Valley huge behemoths. But we celebrate the tumors. We're not saying, holy crap, that tumor is getting really large. Let's douse it in chemo. We're going, holy crap, that tumor is getting really large. Awesome. Go, Elon yeah. Musk. You're the best. This is so, a problem. We don't even see the problem is the problem. So you know? If you're working on those businesses, you know, one of the options is, is leave and try and get, an, get another job. That's a, that's a privileged decision and it choice is. to, to is. have. And, and not everyone can privileged. do that. No, I know. Um, I know a lot. A lot of us are privileged, but for people who have locked themselves in, and it's, it's that approach, it, it is kind of it's a difficult sell to say to to some of these people that just just leave because their argument would be, well, if I leave, someone else will just take my place. Well, of course, and this is an this is an age old argument. This was the same argument that was put forth by slave owners in the in the South of yeah. America, right? They said, if we don't have slaves, we won't be competitive. Well, fuck you. You should never have had slaves. Yeah. That is not an argument, right? Yeah. Yeah. That is not an argument. Maybe you should never have been benefiting off of this unethical business model to begin with. Maybe yeah. the fact that you have benefited and you have more zeros in your bank account than most mm. people do gives you the chance to at least try and set things right at this point. And I'm not saying this to the people who can't, but yeah. I know there are a lot of people who can't. 
and of course, we're also talking about people who know that there's a problem, acknowledge there's a problem, care about the issue. There are also a lot of people who are just like, yeah, <laughs> I'm enjoying this. <laughs> this yeah. is great. Check out my new car. So yeah, there's that um, as well. Yeah. And obviously, if you're not working on those teams and you're not part of those organizations and you are a customer or a someone who uses those tools. Look for alternatives. There are alternatives. alternatives that are coming out. I mean, I, I categorize the alternatives as stop gaps and long-term alternatives, mm. and especially with stop gaps. And what I mean by a stop gap is it may not be perfect in every way. It may not check every ethical checkbox that yeah. maybe someone, that, that maybe I have, or that yeah. it may not satisfy all of the small technology principles that we have on our website or all of the ethical design principles that we have. But it is better than the alternatives, right? Yeah. So today, if you're using Google for your mail, Stop, because you can use FastMail, right? You can give FastMail a couple of bucks, or you can use Hey, which Basecamp just came up with. So you have alternatives there. There you're making a decision, or you're saying, yeah, okay, the, my privacy, as well as the privacy and human rights of everyone I communicate with, is not important enough for me to pay some other company a couple of euros a month and I'm just going to let Google violate both my privacy yeah. and everyone else's privacy that communicates with me. Because remember, that's not that that's if if a if a service, for example, is reading the email that's coming into it and profiling people based on it. Let's say they're not just reading your email; they're also reading the email of everyone that communicates with you, right? And if you have a custom domain, they may not even know that that's happening because they don't ever they don't ever see the wizard behind the curtain. Yeah. Right. They don't even know that that's what's happening. So uh, it's a very, very selfish position um, to be in. But fast so, mail for Gmail. If you're using messaging, stop using Messenger. Facebook is reading every message that's on Messenger unless you can find the hidden option to encrypt it because it's not on by default. Use something like Signal or Wire. They're both centralized. They don't check every one of my checkboxes, but they're end to end encrypted. Yeah. So use something like that. If you want to find a whole list of alternatives and stop gaps, go to switching.software. This is a community-run site where people actually research and try to find alternatives that exist today and stop gaps that exist today. And of course, there are the alternatives, the longer-term alternatives that people like ourselves are working on. It's like you've read my last question. You know that? <laughs> I was like... Scary. I, I'm going to read not, it. I, and, and people are going to think, oh yeah, he must have sent him the question. I think... No, I th no, I didn't. I don't send questions. But I'm now concerned that my privacy is being up for grabs. My last question was, let's look at you. Tell us what technology you're using for your business, like email, phone, internet okay. provider, social media, yeah. password yeah. handler. Yeah. So I'm definitely going to check out that website. What was it called again? It's called switching.software. Okay, definitely. Yeah. I'm going to check that out. Aral, we were coming towards the end of the podcast. I've got, I've got one or two other small questions that, that okay. I just want to give you that aren't going to be as, as probing, shall we say. Okay. Who inspires you at the moment? And who are you reading to stay on top of this? And who are you following as well? I don't think my inspirations come from the tech community, to be, to be perfectly honest. Mm. I mean, I, I'm glad that people like David exist with Basecamp and, and that yeah. they're pushing an alternative within the confines of the current capitalist system. But I mean, who inspires me? People like AOC inspires me. People in the political realm that are taking a stand inspire me. The people who are on the streets protesting the Black Lives Matter movement and the people who are putting their bodies in harm's way to protest against injustice 
they inspire me. People like Greta Thunberg yeah. inspire me. They give me hope. Just last week, I did a talk for these students at this college in Darmstadt in Germany. And I did a talk the year before about these topics. And this year, they invited me back online. And I saw that they were using Mastodon instead of Twitter. So Mastodon is a Twitter mm. alternative. Yeah. I saw that they were using Jitsi and they weren't just using Zoom. And they had incorporated the Jitsi feed for their live events so well as well, technically, into their own website. And their topics that they were covering, et cetera, were they, they, they had such sensitivity to the issues. That's what gives me hope because these are the people who are going to be building tech in 10 years yeah. time or who are now starting and who are going to be out there. So that gives me a huge amount of hope for the future. And also the fact that alongside us, there are other people who are trying to build a different web, who are trying to build a different topology for technology. Yeah. You know, imagine if in the future, we didn't have any of these huge central tumors like Facebook and Google. If we wanted to communicate, we could communicate one-on-one -on -one with each other. And kind of my vision for that future is one where we all have our place on the internet. We can all be reached by at our own name on the internet. So today that might be a domain name. Today that might be uh, mm -hmm. a virtual private server. Yeah. And those are always on and we own and control them. Imagine if instead of these huge centers, everyone had their own place on the internet and everyone could communicate um, with each other directly. That would Imagine what kind of world that would lead to, what kind of social change that would lead mm. to. Because we only know hierarchies in the world, right? Even our political systems are all hierarchies. Even if we're thinking about like the left, a political party is still a hierarchy. Imagine an, an alternative to that where we could just spontaneously organize and express political agency because we could, we had the tools to do that without asking someone for permission. That's the kind of future that I want us to go towards because that's also uh, a sustainable future, yeah. right? Because that's a, that's a future where we devolve all of these huge power differentials. And we need that. We need that for the environment. We need that for our social stability. The battle for our human rights and democracy will be fought with our new everyday things. So it's very important that we build them in the way that we want the world to reflect. And, yeah. and like I said earlier, are you building the kind of world you want to live in? If not, why not? And it's never too late to start. Aral, that is a brilliant way to end the podcast. Thank you so much. If people want to reach out to you, how do they do that? What's the best way to get in contact? Just go on my site. It's very easy. If you remember my first name, Aral, A-R-dot-A-L is my website. It doesn't get any simpler. And from there, you can find links to my Mastodon, etc. Again, if you have your own place on the interwebs, that's a good yeah. first step. I'll throw links to all of those in the show notes. Aral, thanks cool. for your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jerry. So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research, and much, much more. Now, if you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is Hate City newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care. <laughs>